Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view, the people who work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doin' Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. And we've got quite a lot on the show today. First up, we have the continuation of um, a recording of a symposium of a website launch called Deathscapes, which is the presentation of the transnational study of Indigenous deaths in custody, including misdue and refugee and asylum seeker deaths in custody and at the border. And last week, listeners would have heard the first part of this symposium, and I'm going to be playing the rest today. Anything that's been missed, we'll play next week. And then after that... We will be speaking with Claire Seppings, who's been on our show quite a few times, and she'll be speaking to us about a peer mentoring program that is now underway, and this project is titled Straight Talking, and it's trialling a peer-led, through-the-gate peer mentoring model in Geelong. But I'll talk to you about that later and, um, and, and introduce that later on in the show. And so now um, it's it's back to the panels and looking at the responses to the website and here's the rest of the recording. Well, I think, um, you know, since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, as you mentioned, Chris, there hasn't been this strong focus on what has been happening, uh, the state violence directed to Indigenous people and also the refugee people. So it is really significant um, for that reason. It's been a long time since that report was handed down to largely gather dust and more recently um, with the private consulting firm, I understand, reviewing the recommendations. Um, you know, we're really not being um, honest in Australia about um, uh, respectful human rights in that context. Uh, uh, this site, though, um, is much more a people's place of in, um, Indigenous stories, Indigenous art, uh, the refugee uh, people also impacted by state violence. Um, I think um, to just um, place it in a personal context, um, for me as growing up as a Noongar person in Perth, uh, this was very commonplace, violence by police. Um, my family spoke about police running through their houses without warrants. Um, and before I was you know, in my 20s um, or early 30s, uh, there were two members of my extended family, one who was quite young, who had died in um, police and prison. 
uh, custody. And uh, we had, of course, the, a terrible case acknowledging young John Pat, who was only a 16-year-old boy when off-duty police attacked him in the streets of Robin, and he was acquitted by, they were all acquitted by a, a, a jury made up of non-Aboriginal people. Uh, this week uh, there was the rally for the, young, the family of young TJ Hickey who died, I think it was 15 years ago, and there was still no justice there and it was made clear at the rally, including by the Greens um, politicians who took up a petition that no police or prison officers have ever been held accountable for any one death, but the lies of the justice system. When I was a young law student, um, we were just told lies all the time. And um, Chris, actually, one of your papers about judicial bias was a, a really a breath of fresh air, telling the truth about racism in the courts. And I remember as a law student um, also being, feeling inspired by an Aboriginal artist who did a painting of a courtroom which showed one white person in the dock and everyone else was Aboriginal. And I had that um, against my desk to keep me going through those many years. We read the names out and, uh, you know, this, these are real people. Chad Riley, who was tasered to death five times outside Office Works in East Perth, is my friend Sharon's brother, my friend Margie's son. And Chad was a very sick man. This is about two years ago now. He was released from Royal Perth Hospital that morning. He probably shouldn't have been released from the hospital and he slumped outside the Office Works building when uh, an ambulance was called to help him and police arrived and repeatedly tasered him till he died. And in the last year or so too I read in the paper of um, boys that died drowned in the Swan River and I knew straight away as did everyone else that they were not our boys and they were. And since that time we had a new police commissioner who's apologised but these apologies are going to mean nothing if people can keep killing and acting with impunity. Going back to the Royal Commission, it was very significant. There were Aboriginal and prominent people involved. Um, at the same time as we look back, um, we know now that the issue of gender justice for Aboriginal women was not really uh, recognised in that Royal Commission and that was a reflection of the politics predominant at that time which are now changing. I think um, slowly with some resistance though, obviously as we've just heard, you know, there's still um, big blind spots there. We know Aboriginal women now are the fastest growing prison population in Australia. In West Australia, Aboriginal women make up more than 50% of all women in prisoners in WA. And I went out to the prison last week to meet an Aboriginal woman who's my niece's auntie from remote uh, Kimberley region who got a racist sentence. She was, it was a self-defence crime and she got murder 12 years with no parole even though the judge acknowledged she'll die in prison. A white woman judge did that to her so we have to try and for justice for Jodie Gore. So the case study for Miss Do focuses on um, her, her death and her life as a young Aboriginal woman and it's so important that we address human rights claims from the intersectional perspective. We're not, not, we're not one dimensional people. And uh, during the coronial inquest um, I worked with the deaths in custody for a submission to the coroner who was quite hostile through, through that process with Sharon Dev and the National Justice Project and uh, felt very strongly urged this group that we're going to do a proper acknowledgement here of what her situation was and that included that she was a victim of intimate partner violence at the time that she was dying in that um, jail cell. And her family, um, you know, they did acknowledge this. Um, 
marriage and uh, the, the man was actually subject to a violence restraining order for a previous partner and her whole identity as a woman suffering this kind of violence was being completely ignored um, as she was dying as a victim of crime actually in the Port Hedland lockup. And uh, so I don't think the coroner, you know, she didn't of course do any decent job on, on really acknowledging this sort of violence that Indigenous women face, the racism that killed her. It's really um, basically a whitewash. Uh, and this kind of racist, systemic prejudice and neglect that Indigenous women face, it's in, endangering women's lives every day. Um, look, I, I think um, it's um, just very powerful that we have um, the, whole, you know, the whole focus on what is continuing to happen and uh, in, within um, the, the case study of Miss Do, I just want to acknowledge the Pilbara Aboriginal Girls Choir have a lovely song recorded there with Cat Felix, uh, showing um, the, the the love and the respect and the, the memory that the community they say for sister sister Miss Do Julieka, and uh, also that solidarity shown by Cat Felix, who's a non-Indigenous. Uh, musician. It would be lovely if we could um, show that if we had any time today um, and we've mentioned already of course our, our resistance as Indigenous people and and this is absolutely part of it. I think um, the elders and leaders would always say and still say that we keep our fires for justice burning and that's really what um, this site and the work of people is, is doing today. So I'd like to um, move back to um, SAPTO and move on to the second question we've got, and that is more specifically about how the site um, connects with your own work. Sure. I, I was thinking about that, and I think um, certainly what I think the site underscores in terms of the way it presents um, the narratives of refugees in detention is um, the importance of respecting the um, ethical um, principles, you know, of by which someone can express their story. So, for instance, um, often, uh, certainly when we were reading before um, about some deaths in custody, it's important to respect the wishes of family members and the, the need for privacy and the respect for people to be anonymous, for instance. Um, and for a lot of people who come through detention, there are a number of fears. There's the fear that if they're identified publicly, that, that that will become known in their home country from which they've fled, that that could have repercussions for family members. Um, but there's also a very profound fear that they'll be punished by the Australian government for doing anything that's perceived to be uh, political. And so, um, and that doesn't just last whilst they're in detention. They then often will go into community detention. You have a number of people, the, the so-called legacy caseload, who came about eight or nine years ago under the Labor government. They've all, most of them have been through detention and they've spent a couple of years on average, about two years in, inside a detention center. They're now on uh, bridging visas within the community, bridging visa E, but most of them are still waiting for the final um, resolution of their cases. Of course, when the Liberals came into power, no one was getting a permanent visa, and that was it. And so you've got thousands of people who are in the community 
uh, mostly um, men um, who can't be reunited with their families until they get permanent residency, so they're here alone. They're now allowed to work, but still there's that fear that they'll be punished for, for telling their stories or, or, or speaking to the media or doing anything public. And so I think um, the terms on which people can express themselves um, uh, have to be well and truly understood. And I think that that's where, um, I suppose in my experience, I think community work and community art in particular is a good model for engaging um, with people. There's a difference between that and an artist who wants to collaborate with a refugee. So I've seen it happen, unfortunately, quite a few times in which an artist might go into a detention centre or meet a refugee in the community and have a big idea and want to use that refugee or that refugee community for their project and um, the person, you know, wants, you know, feels, feels I suppose they, they go along with that for whatever reason, they, they join in with that project, but it's usually about inflating the ego and the grand vision of the artist. And people often are left feeling exploited and vulnerable and sometimes exposed. Um, whereas on the other hand, I think community art or community work is good because it's based on the understanding that you're working with people um, and that you're doing things on their terms and to an extent that they feel comfortable. And to do that, you need to create um, a safe space in which people can simply socialise and make friends and feel comfortable enough to express themselves and feel comfortable enough to say, well, actually, no, I don't, I don't want to be photographed by that person or I don't want to have my story on this platform because I don't feel comfortable. Um, and I think you need to create a safe space for people to, to feel free enough to do that. So I think, um, yeah, I, I guess looking at the site and looking at, at, at the way it collates narratives um, and individual stories, looking at the way it also keeps privacy and, on, and, 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 and anonymous, anonymity where necessary, um, I think is very important. So I guess that was, that was the main thing that, that struck me. Thanks, Sapta. So, Bronwyn, if we could um, move back to you and if you could um, just talk a little bit about how the site connects with your own work. Um, so, I um, am an academic and do teach Indigenous studies. And so, this site is providing a, a, um, a really um, beautiful but also sad resource for students to actually engage and um, hear stories about somebody in a way that, um, that demonstrates that they're human. Um, so a lot of times we hear statistics, we hear about people as criminals, we hear about people as dysfunctional, we hear about people, particularly Indigenous people, as problems. We don't hear about them as somebody's child, um, a mother of some children, um, a person who has been impacted by colonial violence their entire life. So it humanises, and I think that's really important, uh, particularly in um, the space for Indigenous women, who um, historically have been dehumanised in all of those kinds of things, like the quote that I read out, as something that is just there for the use of other people. So um, for Indigenous studies, I think this site is going to be a very important resource. Um, one of the things that I do um, focus on in my research is... Um, uh, Aboriginal people's use of social media for social, cultural and political engagements. 
and I've been doing a great deal of work over the last few years in that space. And one of the most important things in that space is that we um, are able to have a voice where traditionally mainstream media has ignored um, the things that happen. You know, for example, um, I've been working a bit on cyberbullying, um, and so the death of the young girl um, referred to as Dolly um, sent a national wave of grief and shock through Australian communities, and the government responded with funding and setting up the Office of the Safety Commission and taking note um, that this little non-Indigenous child had suicided, um, impacted by um, cyberbullying. By the end of January, five young Indigenous girls suicided who had links to social media um, of reporting on um, racism and hatred uh, towards them and didn't make the pages of any media in Australia. So social media has given a voice to um, Indigenous people to not only speak back to that absence in media, absence of care about our stories, um, but it's also a way for us to share these kinds of stories. So I um, actively am sharing deathscapes across there, and other Aboriginal people are like, wow, what a great resource. Um, other non-Indigenous people who work in the education space also, this is fantastic. Um, talking to Craig this morning in his role in the Justice Department, I said, this is what this site could do for you um, and what you do, because he, along with many of us, are called to do cultural awareness or to try and educate all the non-Indigenous people around us how to be decent human beings and see um, that there is still such violence and discrimination against Aboriginal people in this country. And I'm hoping that um, I too will be able to use that site and that space. So I'm often called to uh, you know, assist non-Indigenous people in the education space to get it. I just don't get it, and I, I want to know more. Um, you know, so this site's going to be very useful to me um, in that space, and I'm really thankful for that. Um, but in, in terms of social media, it's a way in which these um, stories can be retold and can then always be in focus. And so the, the ceremony earlier of saying, saying the names, ensuring that people's lives are remembered and not just forgotten. Um, and in this country, we have a huge history of forgetting violence against Aboriginal people. If it ever does make the news, it's gone next week. Or shock jocks um, will come on board and make accusations against us to counteract any kind of empathy that um, the rest of the population is supposed to feel. So for example, we saw the uh, you know Invasion Day rallies um, and then mainstream media turned that to, well, you people don't care about violence against Aboriginal women in your communities because you're on the streets. As if apples can be compared to oranges or as if Indigenous people can't have two topics on their mind um, to think about, or as if the Australia Day rallies of Change This Nation had nothing to do with violence against Indigenous women. Very much Changing the Nation had everything to do with the violence against Indigenous women and the unlawful deaths of our children um, and our community members. So for me, the site is fabulous. We can bring that back in. I can show students um, case studies, that they will be able to, to map then not only just the circumstances of what happened, but to actually be involved in the person's life, to read about this person. And um, I was you know, deeply moved by many of the stories, uh, including the ones that were talking to people seeking refuge in this country, because I could see clearly that the blueprint that the empire developed in its relationship with indigenous people how to rid this country of us is being used now against people seeking refuge in this country. 
So the very fact that people seeking refuge are put onto these islands, which is something that has always happened to Indigenous people. Islands have been used as these death camps and detention centres for us also. Um, and also, you know, particularly over there in Western Australia, um, on, on the islands off the coast there and up and down the east coast of Australia. So the blueprint is set in the way in which to deal with others who are not welcome in Australia that was formulated on this idea that it would be white. So for me, the site is very, very useful and I'm very, very thankful to be part of this project. Thank you. So I find um, that there are excellent connections with the kind of work that I'm interested in doing in my research. So the, the site being about identifying, analysing in, in a myriad of ways state violence connects very well with my long-term um, commitment to trying to unravel the way in which law, colonial laws and legal systems are implicated in producing violence um, against a range of people, um, but in particular against racialised people. So I have a sustained focus on the connection between law and colonialism in, in all of my work. So, and, and the way that I'm addressing that concern at the moment in my work is by um, undertaking a project that is around sovereign debt. And it began because I started to think about the way in which the country that my family from, Greece, was subjected to austerity because they had become so overly indebted that they had to be punished by being, um, you know, uh, told that the resources they were able to access had to be restricted. And so this got me thinking about, well, what, what is, who, who can say who is indebted? Um, what is, well, what is sovereignty? What is debt? And why can debt be used as a way of punishing populations in some contexts, but in the context in which I have, um, have been born and have grown up and have lived my entire life, the idea of sovereign debt is something that we don't talk about and it's something that we don't even often in, in the public um, um, conversations or the national conversations anyway, we don't acknowledge. So what I mean by that is that a particular type of economy, a capitalist economy, has been built off the back of continuing, it's continuing, and um, an accrual of sovereign debt. So resources continue to be taken. That requires Aboriginal people to be disconnected from their lands, their countries, and their resources, which in other people's language is wealth. And that wealth is continually extracted. And we, we hear many claims, as I did around the time that I started to think about this, when Greece was a struggling economy, but Australia was a very prosperous economy. Australia was a very successful economy. And so around this sort of big concern, I've been um, quite interested in the way that the debate around constitutional recognition for Aboriginal peoples has been playing out. And um, I think everybody will recall that two years ago, the federal government rejected the idea of an indigenous voice to parliament. And although that campaign has, has continued to, um, you know, to, to unfold in many ways, my own argument about that is that even if that um, constitutional voice were, or that recommendation were to have been successful, it wouldn't be able to go far enough in addressing the question of colonialism. The constitution is the 
the kind of colonial infrastructure. That's how I like to um, to imagine it. And f and so the idea that law has to be contained around it and within it is, is highly uh, restrictive from the point of view of decolonization. And so I was interested in the last couple of weeks about in, in the way that, um, well, Rio Tinto and BHP released, um, made a press release and said that they were in favour of the recommendation for the um, First Nations voice in Parliament. And, um, and I was kind of looking around for what had been said about this and not very much had been said around the, the significance of this idea. So what does it mean then that the federal government has rejected the idea of the voice to parliament but mining companies are now um, self-representing as the, um, the champions of indigenous rights in the constitutional sense. And I think that what it does speak to is the way in which constitutional change is very limited change and that profit can still continue to be um, produced and prosperity can um, flow for industries and, and other um, interest groups um, whilst Aboriginal people are deprived of their, of their resources and their lands. And, you know, I, I think I always try to think of can I imagine any other money-making context where the company or the, you know, the, the company that is setting about to produce a product to sell on the market gets to access their resources for free. So the wealth actually gets produced by the unpaid and disavowed sovereign debt. And so this is a really important way, I think, of, having, of introducing... So, and the other thing about debt and something that I haven't started to grapple with yet is that debt is something that um, is owed, but there are also ways to repay. So this is, um, you know, hopefully something that, you know, we can continue to unravel in, as part of the, of the project as well. Um, and so I'm really excited that we're going to be um, hearing from um, from Ryan later today because of, this, of, of his artworks that um, speak about this idea of prosperity and um, and the way that economies have been built off the back of of dispossession and that dispossession is is ongoing um, because as the example of the mining company shows that there is a a dual thing going on with prosperity and austerity. And I would say that austerity is something that, you know, I mean, although it came to my attention in very particular detail when I started to think about the Greece situation, it's something that has always operated as a technology of colonialism. And it is because it is precisely about the production of wealth for some while the, and the restriction of resources for, for many others, but in particular Aboriginal people. And this made me connect it to what has happened in the last couple of days as well with the, um, the passing of the legislation to bring um, very ill uh, refugees onshore for, for treatment. And again, it asks us to think about law as a colonial infrastructure. I think it would be a mistake not to. And to think about the way in which this bill is a victory in the sense that it allows for medical treatment but to think about it as in that is something that has had to be asked for that should never have to have been asked for. And it also asks us to think about the way that in response to that bill being passed, what has also happened is that the Prime Minister has declared that we'll be re we as a 
and the Australian nation will be reopening one of the detention centres on Christmas Island. So what that shows is that, yes, the law has been passed and that can be seen as progressive, but the deeper law, which stems from the Constitution having validity, is very much intact, and that's the place from where executive power gets exercised. So it is... So we need to see it in part of that, you know, so I think this connects very much to the, the deeper question of, um, of the way in which the constitutional debates are hijacking debates around other legal battles, for example, the Wangan and the Jungalingu people who are fighting currently in Queensland against the Adani mine. So again, there's a double violence there. The peoples have to go to the federal court to ask for that, that court to make a judgment that the Indigenous land use agreements, which are being claimed as legitimate, but they're saying you don't have consent from us to access our resources. But the federal court is being asked to decide, but that federal court exists precisely because of the dispossession. So the legal system has to be really looked at in, and I think this is what the site helps us to do, to look at the Descape sites, to look at the way in which the law can be both an agent for um, assisting peoples, but also the deeper ways in which it also authors social problems. So I think that's the, they're the, the connections for me. So I've um, been trained in human rights laws, the system of um, laws related to the um, United Nations that we've signed on to for many years and significantly the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People that uh, took over a decade of work and negotiation by our Indigenous leaders, including um, Helen Ali Corbett, um, who's of any uh, note was recognised recently by Curtin University for her work. And I knew Helen as a young law student and learnt a lot just from yarning with her about um, the efforts of Indigenous people for such a long time to uh, fight for international human rights standards. I, I think the Deathscape site certainly um, will be interacting really well with um, the claims that are being made and need to be made before the United Nations about um, violence, state violence and uh, lack of respect for fundamental human rights including the right to life most obviously. Um, I think it could be definitely used as a record keeping, as an evidentiary um, evidence records uh, for people who have their loved ones lost, for us as Indigenous nations who are being deprived of these very basic fundamental human rights. And uh, we haven't really used um, some of the UN mechanisms um, as much as we probably could. Uh, and there is a, a mechanism um, called optional protocol now attached to most of the treaties that we've signed. Um, for example, the Convention on the Elimination of Race Discrimination, the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, and recently we've signed the OPCAT Convention Against Torture, which will impose some standards of accountability further around um, uh, treatment of prisoners um, and we desperately need those um, so many cases of um, abuse that um, are probably not in Descape because this is about where people are killed 
those other attempts that are non-fatal, really, you know, to, to kill people, it seems like, in West Australia, in the women's prison, Bandiup, which is a very run-down um, prison, overcrowded. Uh, last year and 12 months, we had um, two horrific cases. One where an Aboriginal woman who was no doubt suffering from mental health distress from her, her life was left in a prison cell alone to give birth to a baby. It's unbelievable, isn't it? And everyone, the prison guards just watched and said they couldn't, couldn't find their keys and we know that's just not true. And I met another woman in a psychiatric facility and I, I just couldn't believe when I found out that she had been transported to that facility from Bandiup with no clothes and she was handcuffed like that on a 30 kilometre journey. So this inhumane treating Aboriginal people as if just animals, Aboriginal women as, as like this. And of course you have then the official sort of investigation which says this was not right or whatever, but nothing's ever done and no one's really held accountable for that. So I think that optional protocol is a mechanism which allows individuals who cannot get justice in their own country and they've exhausted mechanisms to then take their complaint to the UN. And I think some of the deaths in custody, you know, they probably should make their way to the UN. It's a system of naming up um, violation of human rights and uh, calling for accountability in that way. Um, and, and of course I think the, um, the site, and particularly the Miss Do case study, really does um, break open that silencing that's happened around the violence towards into Indigenous women. Um, certainly when I was a young woman growing up and working in Indigenous radio and in the community, I was told that we mustn't speak about you know, sexual violence against children or abuse in the homes. This was sort of shunned. But of course the brave Aboriginal women were always working in the refuges and always trying to speak up about this but we were being told all the time to be quiet. And I don't think it was our traditional culture because we're called a matrilineal people. We follow in our mother's line. And women were always very, very strong people. And we're still um, fighting that, that battle. And uh, Miss Do's case study really um, does bring out this issue for us as Indigenous women that we need to um, really um, unveil and um, have accountability and dialogue in our own community and renounce and, and denounce uh, all forms of human rights abuse. Um, and, uh, you know, it is really, I think, part of our decolonisation, obviously, as Aboriginal people, that we um, do this and it's a part of our healing journey. And uh, I think the case study talks about the group in America, Insight, that um, have turned away or don't support the criminal justice system as a response and I have slowly come to that position. I know it needs to be there for, you know, some, in some ways for violence restraining orders, etc., which usually though do not work or, or aren't enforced anyway, but the real um, and, and, the, and the right approach is for us as Indigenous people to fearlessly tackle this and, and make change, make the change ourselves to to uphold human rights in a, in a much more meaningful way. And you just heard a recording, or the second part of an edited recording, that was in, made in Sydney on the 16th of February 2019. And that was a symposium and website launch um, documenting Indigenous 
and refugee deaths in custody. And the chairs for that event were Sovendri Pera and Joseph Pugliese. And basically uh, the recording um, was over two weeks and you can there are podcasts that you can download from the internet. And I concentrated mainly on panel one, which was the responses to the Deathscape site. And Bronwyn Carlson, Maria Janakopoulos and Hannah McLeod um, were, were actually um, on that panel. And the website is www.deathscapes.org and it's quite timely that this recording has happened given that the inquest of David Dungai will be happening next week of an Aboriginal death in custody, but more about that later. So pretty soon um, we're going to be interviewing Claire Seppings and I'll be speaking about her in just a sec. So um, if people need to know more about this recording, they can contact Marissa Doing Time Show 94198377. And so um, we're going to be speaking now with Claire Seppings about a mentoring program that's happening in Geelong. Um, And I'll just um, bring you that intro in just a second. And yeah, Claire, Claire has been um, on our show many times and has done some quite extensive work on um, helping people with the lived experience of prison. This project titled Straight Talking is trialling a peer-led through-the-gate peer mentoring model in Geelong. Prisoners leaving Marguerite Correctional Centre to live in the Geelong area will have the option of being supported by a peer mentor. The project is based on Claire Seppings' Churchill Fellowship, which studied the role of ex-prisoners as peer mentors in the UK, Ireland, Sweden and USA. In such jurisdictions, ex-prisoners who have reformed contribute to reducing re-offending by mentoring newly released prisoners and advising on improvements to service systems that enable people to live a crime-free life. This groundbreaking program is a partnership between Deakin University and the Department of Justice and Community Safety and funded through philanthropic grants, in particular Geelong's Give Where You Live Foundation and the Ian Potter Foundation. Claire Seppings, who is a regular on our show, is a Churchill Fellow and Criminal Justice Consultant and is the Peer Mentoring Projects Coordinator with Deakin University. Deakin is now recruiting individuals with adult prison life experience who are interested in being a volunteer peer mentor. Mentors who will provide advice, guidance and support to persons being released from prison. So if you are an ex-prisoner and interested in becoming a volunteer peer mentor in Geelong, the project needs you. And yeah, so I'm going to actually get Claire on the line now and she can talk about this in more detail. Hello Claire, welcome to the program. Oh, hi, Marisa. And look, yeah, thanks for having me on. And because um, I was just thinking that, you know, during time show is the perfect um, show to put the call out there. Absolutely. Um, because it's, um, you know, it's a unique opportunity and it's a unique call out there for one. Um, and you look, you um, covered it, you know, beautifully. Thank you. And it's really um, just what our poster says, it's out there saying, you know, volunteers <laughs> wanted. Have you been in prison before? <laughs> um, and um, yeah. also like Geelong Advertiser did a nice little piece on it too. And um, 
we've already got some interest from people that have seen the um, article in the Geelong Advertiser. So, yeah, essentially, you know, we've been building this model for a good year, um, you know, and I, that has been, you know, based on what I learnt, you know, overseas on the Churchill Fellowship, um, but also then what was going to suit the jurisdiction here and in particular in the, you know, in Geelong area and working with everyone, we've been working with everyone down there. It's it's going to, you know, then, like, it's we're essentially ready to go and it's, it's a trial, so other parts of the uni will be looking at that side of it. Um, but essentially, this part of coordinating it is saying, OK, um, we've got some interest from people with lived experience of prison already, putting their hand up saying, look, I want to be considered um, for this. Um, but, we, yeah, it's just um, putting the call out there still that, you know, if people are interested in being, um, you know, if they've had a lived experience, experience of adult prison before, um, right. living in the Geelong area or happy to, you know, travel to the Geelong area. To yeah, I mean, you can be in Melbourne, providing. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you could. Like, if you're keen to come on down, it's, it's essentially about the people that are coming out of the prison going to Geelong to live back in that area or around that area. Um, so, Claire, can, can you tell us what is a mentor mm. exactly? I mean, can, can you give us a little bit of background about what yeah, is a mentor sure. and how did you how did this project actually come about? Sure. Well, um, I suppose the first part is that like a, a mentor, and in our sense, they're peers. So they're they're all peers, <laughs> um, as in yeah, they're we're mentoring um, people coming out of prison. So these mentors are peers have been ex prisoners, so been in there before. So and it's volunteer, so it's really just a couple of hours a week, and it's. And it's about that, like, just giving that support from the um, knowing, you know, I walked in your shoes before, but it's really anything in particular that that person might need in the navigating when they're out. So um, they might need the assistance with housing. It's not getting the housing, but it's connecting them to the signposting to the housing support agency, taking them along to meet the people they need to to help. Um, it could as well be through look, just supporting them. Um, the you know to the if first parole meeting they've got to have when they oh, come okay. out. Okay. Yep. Or good. it could even be just having a phone call to say, "Hey, I just need to have a chat." or I need to go and have a coffee, or do you want to, you know, help me get back into the gym and just, you know, help spot with me? Or can we go for a jog around the Oval? Or can you help me get into sport? Or yeah, can you yeah. just help me when I'm just needing, yeah, like that, someone to have a chat to? So it's going to, it's going to be individually tailored what that person actually needs. It could be that they just need to get their driver's licence and need, hey, how do I do this again? Um, and then that's all that may be that they need. But so it's the essence, though, that, hey, finally I've got someone helping me in this kind of interim time um, and that connection that actually has knows exactly what I'm going through because yeah. they've been through the experience themselves. You know, we've got a lot of services out there doing great work and, um, you know, giving case management support and all sorts of things. Um, but they're very, very, it's very, very rare to have somebody in this space that has actually been there, done that before. That's fantastic. So it's called straight talking. So 
Where, yeah. How did that happen? How did that name come about? <laughs> Which is from good. I'm mom. into straight talking. Are you? <laughs> it was from my mum. <laughs> Sorry? Funny. It was from my mum. Really? <laughs> my Fantastic. Mom, yeah. Um, yeah, like we were trying to find, you know, and we were get, trying to get everybody to come up with ideas. And then I was just on the phone to her one day saying, oh, look, you know, we're just scratching our head trying to think what's the best name without being too cliched or that someone hasn't used before. And she just said, what about straight talking? She said... That's fantastic. It's actually linked to... Because the, the catalyst, the personal catalyst for my Churchill Fellowship was when my ex-partner, who was an ex-prisoner, said to me one day when he was back in prison, I don't know how to be straight. <laughs> so well. she, she made that connection and, and it is that, yeah. But it, as soon as we said it, you know, it, everyone gets it. That's exactly what we're talking about. Absolutely. And just with your, the, the fellowship, yeah. so mm. this mentoring program is actually already happening, isn't it, overseas? Yes. So Because you, you wrote a report about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, my, I was you know, granted that fellowship to go and study the role of ex-prisoners as peer mentors. I came back with so much more. And, like, you remember when Mark Johnson came out? Yes, he came, he came on, in, the, on the show. Yeah. Yep. So he, he's a perfect example of that so much more, you know, where there's actually people with the lived experience of prison, you know, who are running and leading their own organisations and employing ex-offenders within that organisation. So peer mentoring was what I went to, to um, study. I came back with so much more, but this particular program is just then on that. Okay, we haven't got a through-the-gate peer mentoring program yet that we know of anywhere still in Australia, and this is going to be the first of it, where you've actually got ex-prisoners as the mentors going back into the prison start the relationship with those that are wanting such a mentoring relationship and supporting them through the gate back out into the community. And so that's happening, ah. yeah, uh, in, you know, overseas where I learned about it. And it's happening here now. It's, going to give, it, it's happening here and we're going to see how it goes here and all going well then, and I'm sure it will, um, let's um, yeah, see it expand as well and others pick it up and do it. What's the prison called? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're the in Geelong, yeah. So we've got Marganite Correctional Centre down there. Marganite, that's the one, yep. yeah. That's the one we're developing it with. And mm. so basically, it's it's the relationship starts in prison. So the volunteer would be going into the prison first yep. to see if mentors are needed, and then obviously out the gate. And it's really interesting what what you're saying. We you know we we're just talking before about examples. Um, and, in fact, when I was doing um, legal advocacy um, mm. in the women's prison, I remember a woman had just got out of prison and I was able to organise to get some money, um, some funding for her to um, get some counselling through victims of crime, but also some money to get her to stay, to have her to stay in a, in a hotel. It wasn't like a boarding house. It wasn't seedy or anything. It was a, a nice room. Mm. And she was crying. And and I said to her, what's wrong? And she said, I really, I feel really alone. I feel really spooked because I'm used to having women around me, you know, in the cells and in the dining room. And, you know, I wasn't allowed to go and spend time with her because of, mm. um, you know, the, being the advocate, you're not allowed to do things like that. But 
it would have been great for her to have a mentor. Exactly. You know, it's um, not that I wasn't allowed. I mean, it's it's like it wasn't sure. in the. You couldn't do that. It, it wasn't in the in the policy. So yeah. so it would have been fantastic to have a mentor, Claire. You know, yeah. to support her, to have dinner with her, perhaps. Mm. You know, stuff to socialise even, as a volunteer. Yeah, you know, we had uh, we held a community information session in Geelong, um, and that's where the Geelong Advertiser put in, you know, an article and said, anyone interested, go along to the information session. And and that was actually one of the comments from one of the people that came along that's interested in being um, a peer mentor, um, said just that, that what they found when they came out um, was the loneliness. And and they themselves had actually had the benefit of a mentor, not a peer, as in that in a in a program, but just thought, no, now now I yeah, I absolutely could see the need. Um, just what we've got the added the added value I'd say with this is that it is a peer. So and this will be you know somebody that's that's been there, done that, seen the benefit of having a mentor anyway. Um, but now it's like, well, yeah, I've actually been through the experience of what that loneliness is like, seen the difference that a mentor can make, and now I could do the same back, but I've got the added value that I even know what it's like that you're going to go, go through. Absolutely. And so where can – so let's be practical here. Let's yeah. let's create something where volunteers can contact. Where can they contact if volunteers are interested? So they can contact me. They can email me um, on as a Claire C L A I R E dot settings S E W P I N G S at Deacon dot dot AU. I think you might have that. Yes, yes, I do. Yes, and just yes. to, to remind listeners or any potential volunteers that Claire is the peer mentoring projects coordinator with Deakin University. And right. and just also to 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 remind again, you know that it's that it's about that this actually came out of the Churchill Fellowship, and in yeah. fact we were talking to Mark, um, Mark, what was his role again? He came out here. John Johnson, he's the founder and CEO of User Voice in the UK. That's right, and he came out here, and you and he was one of the people that you interviewed, and that you did some extensive research um, for that program, isn't it? And when he came out here, I remember you and I were talking to him on air and I said, when's this going to happen in Australia? And it's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. let's and hope it expands. He was, he, was def- he was one of my yeah, inspirers. Yeah. Claire, so, are no, there any other things that you, that you want to tell us? Any final comments? Look, I think it's um, – I think we've probably look, um, covered it. If there's – yeah, literally if anybody knows anybody then that um, – you know, has been in prison before, is keen to give, you know, back through a mentoring role. Um, there is an opportunity now in the Geelong area um, for people that are in prison at the moment that would be, yeah, that are keen to then uh, be motivated, you know, motivated towards change and but keen to have that extra support through a mentor. So um, if you want to be something, be a part of something that's um, unique and exciting and potentially in Australia first, it's it's happening now. <laughs> and a shout out to our brothers and sisters inside that, you know, if, if anyone's getting out, pass it on, pass on the message to your visitors. And obviously it's um, that person needs to have the lived experience of prison. Yeah, 
that's right. Claire, can you just read that email address out, please, again? Yep. So Claire, C-L-A-I-R-E dot Seppings, S-E-P-P-I-N-G-S at Deakin dot edu dot au. So dot edu, so dot edu. Yes, sorry, yes, yep. Fantastic. Well, we'll be plugging that regularly on this show, um, if that's okay. And, And let's have you have you back on again soon. All right, love to. Thanks, Marissa. Thanks so much, Claire. Okay. Bye. 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 And that was Claire Seppings, who um, is has initiated and founded a peer mentoring support um, model and program. And any volunteers that are interested um, with the lived experience of prison um, to to mentor um, people from prison and that are coming out. And again, if people want to know more about that, contact Marissa. Care of Doing Time Show 9419 8377 if you missed that email address for Claire. And obviously you have to have been in prison. It's approximately 4.52. Just to give a little bit of a recap in regards to the Deathscape Symposium, which um, I just wanted to let listeners know that it is an edited version. The website itself is www.deathscapes.org. Um Org, that's right, I'll just repeat that, www.deathscapes.org if people want to have a look at that. It is terribly important because there are really important linkages there um, for all deaths in custody and having a look at what's happened there um, and any ongoing, it's all ongoing. And so the, the, there, was, there, is, um, there were plenty of other things um, happening at that event and in particular there was a video message from... Um, an asylum seeker, I believe, from Manus Island. And the what we weren't able to do that, to have that video message because it really wasn't very good quality. Um, but you can find it in full and it's better quality on um, the Deathscapes website once all of that is concluded. And there was, there was a keynote speaker as well looking at visual art and deaths in custody. Um, and there were too many slides actually to record that. So basically, I mostly record concentrated on the panels um, and looking at the name calling of the deaths in custody. And of course, um, there there were some speakers from Ray Jackson's family, and he was actually honoured throughout that event. And I thought I'd give listeners just a little bit of a summary um, about what happened there. And I'm just going to do at least one announcement. Um, my apologies that there was no music. Um, it was pretty jam-packed. So I'll do an announcement and then we'll say goodbye. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doing Time show. And we've got Beyond Zero coming up next. And we're going to be going out with our theme song pretty soon, um, Black Fella, White Fella from the Rumpy Band. So, yeah, so if people are interested in um, listening to the podcasts, of the Deathscape Symposium, um, it's that's going to be the first. The first podcast is available, 
and um, you'll be, be able to tune into that podcast um, sometime at the end of the week for this particular one now. And it's approximately 4.55 and um, just before I go, just to, to summarise yet again, we had um, Hannah McGlade on the the panels and also we, we had Bronwyn Carlson as well and we had Maria Janopoulos um, and and that, that was it, I think. So anyway, we've got about one minute left. But yeah, I, I just wanted, as I said, to to be really instrumental in being able to summarise the material as it was being recorded because a lot of the time the names of the speakers weren't announced before the actual um, speaker. But you'll be able to follow that very, very easily. Anyway, stay in tune um, every Monday from 4 to 5 for the Do and Time show. And it's goodbye from Marie.